before. Uh, we've covered some major, we've touched uh, upon a number of very major concepts that Lazaro has been developing. And one of those, one of those concepts is the primary concept that Lazaro is working with is that we are in attempt to eventually try to understand God's justice. The intellect makes a statement that God programmed his world with justice and that ultimately there are ways of seeing this, the basic guidelines, the basic guidelines of justice and obviously in order to appreciate those guidelines of justice one must know what are the things for which man is being judged for? What are the criteria of, of reason, reasonable expectation of man? This is, the, this is the essential question. And that's how it starts. This, the, uh, let me just go quickly, very quickly through the dialogue so you can get a sense of how the thing follows. The, the soul begins asking questions about reward and punishment, divine providence, the concepts of Mashiach and the concepts of resurrection. The intellect says, what's your problem with these things? The soul answers, my problem is that there are a lot of things in the world that don't seem to be just. They don't seem to work with providence or reward and punishment. The intellect says, you're asking a very great question, an intricate question that's going to need a lot of, a lot of material in order to eventually come at some kind of principal answers to the question. But the first thing that we have to know is that God does deal with justice. The intellect then continues to say, but in order to appreciate justice, we have to know what God is looking for and reasonably looking for in terms of man's potentials and challenges that he's judging man for, because otherwise there's no way of appreciating what God is doing. To which the soul says, I agree, and start getting into a discussion about that. And the discussion essentially leads to the fact that God created man with certain provisional imperfections, and this was not meant because God is holding back on what he wants to give man, but God is sincerely interested in giving man in the highest form of man being able to receive, which entails man's struggling and working and developing himself. Sure, God could have given a spiritual welfare check to man, and everything would have been his just merely by standing on a line and waiting for it, but it was much more important for man to develop through the priorities that he would choose for himself, through the challenges that he would assume, through the choices that he would make, and then in the end, it would be to his merit, to his self-worth, and ultimately to his deeper development because he went through the process. So essentially, God holds back, and God does create man with uh, shortcomings which allow all kinds of choices to be made, but the ultimate goal of that is not to hold back and to be bad to man, but essentially that's made for the, for the purpose of, of man's deepest development and deepest good. This is essentially what we've covered, and if, if, if those of you that recall it, we went into a lengthy discussion last time what the Jewish concept of man's shortcomings is all about. How do we look at it? How do other religions look at the concept of shortcoming? and the beliefs that are built around it. How does Judaism look at the concept of shortcoming? And that was really the topic of conversation last time. Where we have to go today is, is, a, is a very obvious place, and I don't recall who it was that asked the question two weeks ago, but somebody asked a very obvious question which we're going to get into today. We talk about the word shortcomings, almost as if since we all have shortcomings, we all know what it means. 
but do we really know in the context of what Ramesh Chaim Lutzatha is talking about what do, what do we mean when we talk about shortcomings in other words the author is saying that everybody is created with them essentially they are provisional they're temporary they're not meant to be indelible marks that do man to certain behavior they don't determine from day one to the day that the person dies how he's going to behave but they do create unique challenges each person with the particular potentials and shortcomings that he has that was the statement that was made and this is for man's good but do we know what shortcomings what, what are the shortcomings okay in other words, uh, uh, essentially what, what the author is saying is man creates, God creates man with shortcomings and he also creates man with the potentials to overcome those shortcomings and essentially how God judges man is how well did you do with the potentials that I gave you, how well did you meet up and approach those particular shortcomings and how well did you do at the job. That's essentially the format of the dialogue. Right? God is just but God is judging man. What is God judging man for? For the completion of his shortcomings based upon the potentials that are given to him. Okay, but what do we mean by shortcomings? Let's give a definition of what, does, what do we mean by shortcomings. And this is essentially the question that he asks. All right, let's see this inside. Now, there's going to be some material here that from past experience in teaching this material, there is um, an instant... Um, a feeling that we can have that we want to respond uh, almost in a violent way to a couple of the things that the author says. He, he's going to make a, a number of very strong statements. I ask your perseverance and patience because I'll try to explain it as best as possible and then if there still remains open areas that don't seem to have been touched in my explanation then I'll open up the floor for conversation and questions about it. So let's look uh, on page 18, if you're more comfortable, you can look in the English on page 19. Uh, at the beginning, where the neshama, where the soul, is continuing the dialogue. Amraha neshama. So the soul says, Atamis yashiv belibi. The reasoning that you have given why man was purposely created with shortcomings, misyashiv belibi, it makes a certain amount of sense to me. I can relate to that. Man needs, has a need for self-worth. Man needs, has a need for de deeper self-development. I can relate to the concept that when we come upon man with shortcomings, it's not an accident, but it was pre-planned on, on God's part. I can, re I can relate to that. I can understand that. Misyashiv Belibi. Atta, and now, now that you have laid that, the foundation of that concept, our attitude towards sh shortcomings, hashlim dvarecha please complete the thought that you began. In other words, you were beginning with the thought that this is the challenge of man and this is what man has to do and this is what man is going to be judged for and this is what the justice is based upon, both the challenge and the potential to deal with the challenge. Finish up the concept. Finish up the idea. Amaha right? So the intellect says, from the introduction which I have just given you, it has come out to us a very large principle that, it, that is necessary for us to really think about seriously. And what is that that we need to consider now? The thing that we really have to get into now and try to understand is 
What do we mean when we say chisaron, which means a lack or a shortcoming? And what do we mean when we say that we are, we are trying to go to a state of shlemus, to a state of completion? Right? I don't like to use the word a state of perfection because nothing is perfect and it makes a lot of people psychologically very anxious to use the word perfection. But what do we mean when we say chisarin? What do we mean when we say a lack or a shortcoming? <coughs> and what do we mean when we say that man is challenged to take the potentials that he is born with to reach a state of shlemus, to reach a state of wholesomeness? What does that mean? You know, philosophically to talk about it is very nice. But practically, in day-to-day living, what does it mean? All right? What does it mean? It is very necessary for us to understand the fundamental definition of what does it mean, lack or shortcoming, and what will be the end results of the fact that man has not yet addressed the fact that he has lacks and shortcomings. In other words, what will be the products of the shortcomings of man? In other words, very often... And this is a very important thing. I had a discussion, I believe, with somebody after the class last two weeks ago, which is very important. We, we live in a fast food society, and we look at everything by virtue of its product. But very often when we talk about chisar and when we talk about shortcoming, it's not so much, it's not as important to talk about the, the, uh, the act itself, which, you know, oh, he flew into a rage, he flew into a temper, um, he spoke uh, violently or vehemently against another person. That's okay. That that is definitely something which is a shortcoming. But it's it's not so much to focus on that itself, but to focus on the chisarin that creates it. What was it that was missing in the personality or the condition of man that created the tilda? So, in other words, the lack within man, maybe he's very arrogant, so he gets angry. So, the chesaron would be the arrogance. The lack would be the fact that he hasn't worked out his personality and he's arrogant. The tilda, the product of his arrogance, is that he flew into a rage. So, it's very important to define what is the lack, and then what are the results in terms of behavior of the lack. So, ma'u'a chesaron, how can we define chesaron, how can we define lack, the shortcoming, and how do we then relate to it certain behaviors which are what? Teldaisav. Telda means the child or the byproducts of that chisarin. Umahu And what can we do to complete that shortcoming with which we would be completing ourselves and to a certain extent we would be elevating the world around us as well. The Ezaderech Heosis Hatikun Hazeh. How do we go about? What is the process for this tikkun, for this correction process? And what would be the natural behavioral changes that would be the result of this tikkun, of this correction? So he's asking a very, very logical question. Yaakov, there's a chair right here. I don't bite. You just need wings, but otherwise. Amra Hanashama. So the soul says, is there a bench back there by any chance? There is right out. If you want to go through that door and then to the right, just be careful, the door is broken. There should be another bench there. Amra Hanishama, Avachashavasani. Just watch the wires here. This all sounds wonderful on tape. Avachashavasani. Avachashavasani. 
you're lucky I didn't use your last name. But I would, I would think Shahayetzarach lahavin mahu hashlemus, mahu hashlemus sheigialay haadam kishehishlem avedasei v'shavas mimalachtei sheaz navin lamachbreya kolzesh hiskarnu. So the neshama here is is saying the soul is saying here something which is very fascinating. Without having any idea of what's supposed to be, it's very hard to know what's missing. Right. For a person not to know what's missing and not to know what's considered a complete state. Where do you start? There's nowhere to start. On, on the basis of what do you make your decision about what's missing? Obviously, logically, you start, you start off with what should be. What should be. And then you say, what, this is what should be. This is what is. And the difference from what should be to what is, is what the chesarn is, is what the lack is. So therefore, in the Shama, the soul is, is saying to the intellect, you're asking a question which is a little bit upside down. You're asking the question, what is considered shortcoming and lack? The way to answer that question is to ask a different question. You know, every question is answered with another question. But the way to a- ask the question, the, a- the real way to ask the question is, what is shlemus? What is perfection? What is considered a wholesome state of existence? By defining what is considered a wholesome state of existence, then to the extent that we can now map out and we can point to certain things which impede or act as barriers to that wholesome state of existence, those are the shortcomings. Okay? So the neshama here is almost taking the role of intellect in answering this question, but answering it in a very logical way. You, I want to know what chesaron is. Tell me what shlemus is. Tell me what the wholesomeness is, and from that I will work backwards and I will deduce what chisarin is, what a lack is. Vatam, and this is what he explains. Vatam and the reason for this is very simple. Ki because that which man is, that which man eventually gains, is what he was missing to begin with. That which he eventually reaches in terms of his development, is what he was missing originally. And because he's lacking it, that's what is obligating him to move ahead and to try to gain it and to acquire it. Now, this seems, to the, so to speak, to the naked eye, seems to be very simple or oversimplified. We need a paragraph in Ramosha Chaim Lutzata, the great philosopher and thinker, to tell me that what's what one will eventually reach at the end, that's what, until he has it, he's missing it. I mean, you don't, what do you, what do you need? I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not exactly the most monumental statement. I think it's rather obvious, but it's not, and I'll tell you why. And if you think about it for a moment, it's, we all would think that this is logical, but in terms of our own lives, to a greater or lesser degree, we don't believe this. And I'll explain to you what I mean. I'll explain to you what I mean. <coughs> in spiritual development, in spiritual development, one of the greatest, I don't want to sound very hard about it, but one of the greatest enemies of spiritual development very often is our own self-concept, which is a whole, it's a whole talk for itself, which I'm not going to get into. But... Uh, that is most problem. Man's greatest enemy, as was once said, is himself. Right? 
And in terms of spiritual development, one of the key elements is the fact that a person doesn't believe in themselves. They don't believe that they're made of that stuff. They don't m believe that they could ever reach it. They don't believe that it's, it relates to them. There are all kinds of different um, adaptations of this belief. Uh, but they all belong, if you'll ask me, they all belong in a certain degree of a lack of a, self, a proper and healthy self-concept. And obviously, obviously, if there is a lack of a healthy self-concept, man cannot grow beyond what he believes he can grow. For a person to be able to grow and to become what he becomes, he has to have a belief. If it's a dream, if it's, if it's some kind of aspiration or a hope, but it has to be within the parameters of his striving. It has to be within the parameters of his aspiration. He believes that it's for him. The things that are totally outside of my parameters, I'm not jealous of them, I don't want them, I don't aspire to them, because they're out, out of my realm. And when it comes to spiritual development, when it comes to spiritual development, what very often happens is that I limit myself by believing that this I'm not, this I can never be, this is ridiculous. I mean, maybe I'll get through Aleph base, but to be able to go through Chumash, or if I got through Chumash, that I should be able to go through Machshavit, to be able to develop a mind that can uh, understand Jewish philosophy, that's for sure not for me. And even if I know those things, but to be a person that is a virtuous person and a good person and can put what he learns into reality, that's certainly not for me. I mean, there are all kinds of different beliefs that we have of ourselves, conscious or subconscious, that we di actually distance ourselves from what we can really become. Let's say, okay, and I'm going to take a very, very extreme example, okay, and I don't want anybody to have a weakening of the heart, as it's called, from the example. But let's take the following example. Uh, it's, um, it's appropriate to talk about it because, if I'm not mistaken, it's either tonight or tomorrow night that it's the, the first anniversary of the passing of Rav Moshe Feinstein. If I'm not mistaken, it's either tonight, it's tonight but it, it, it's appropriate to talk about it the, uh, this evening. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who most probably was considered the greatest uh, authority and sage and altogether a tremendously great person. There's a book that's lying around somewhere here, or maybe we put it away to look neat. But uh, there's an entire book that was written in the past year about who, the person who was finally called Rav Moshe. Now, if you read some of the material and the information about Rav Moshe, you begin to wonder if he was a human being or not. You know, like his ability to, um, if, if anybody can see, or those of you that can see these 20 volumes, these 20 yellow volumes, uh, th there's a lot of stuff in those pages, and it's a little fine print, and it's hundreds of pages, thousands of pages, and to assume that a man would be able to know all of that by heart, and at what age he knew it by heart, or the whole set up there of the Mishnayis to review the entire thing once every month, or something like that, by heart, when he's taking off his tefillin or something like that. You know, <laughs> these kinds of things are very hard to grasp, and one begins to think that, you know, this is like, you know, this is from outer space, this is from a different world. Now, let's, so to speak, reel back in time to, to the moment that Rav Moshe was born, okay? What Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata is saying is that what shows itself in the end, 
the greatness of this human being and his, his, scholar, his scholarship and his knowledge and his saintliness and his, and his greatness of a human being. Everything that came out through his lifetime, potentially it was there at the moment that he was born. It's not as if it wasn't there and all of a sudden God gave him a gift. Okay, you're being a tremendous person, a tremendous human being. I am going to endow you in installments with spirituality and with saintliness and really it's not you but I'm going to give you all of these things as you're going along because you deserve them you've worked for them so I'm going to give them to you what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying is nothing doing what you see is in the end the completion or the wholesomeness of the person I want you to know that all of those potentials were there from the moment the person was born in other words we could say that a person is born with certain potentials and then when he's finished and he's realized all those potentials so then God says nope he did his job we've got to give him more and then he gets more and then he gets more than that and more than that what much Chaimlitz had to say is nothing anything that ultimately is the definition of what I can do I, the potential was there from the very beginning and that's the statement which he's making so for instance for instance, in the case of Rav Moshe, again, I'm telling you that I'm using an extreme example, okay? So if Rav Moshe showed the potential, and not everybody has that potential, by the way, but if Rav Moshe shows the potential for such tremendous greatness in education, in knowledge, in all of these areas, when Rav Moshe started his life, he was tremendously chaser. He was tremendously lacking. Why was he tremendously lacking? Because these were all the things that he could do with his potentials. And until they're done, he's chaser. He's missing. Okay? Now, when you put it into that kind of a light, it's not so simple. It's not so easy to swallow anymore. Because now we're already saying that virtually anything which eventually with, is within the grasp of man is really there. Which is a monumental statement for two reasons. Number one, because it, it speaks of the greatness of man and the privilege of man. It also speaks of a tremendous compelling obligation to find what we are and to maximize what we are. Because by definition, I can't say, well, since I know more than 90% of the Jewish population, so I'm shalem, I'm already a wholesome person. It does, the definition of missing or having has nothing to do with any other person in the world. It only has to do with the, who I can be and who I am. The fact that I know, for instance, more than 90% of people, I don't mean myself, I'm just using it as an example, 90% more than more, uh, any other Jew knows, so I'm Shalif. You know, relative to everybody else, I've made it. So, but that's not the definition, because it's a very personalized thing, what you can be and what you are. And the difference between the two is the definition of, of the chaser that you're dealing with and which is your particular challenge. I mean, that's, you know... That's, um, that's, that's something that uh, needs uh, a lot of thought. That's, that's the point that he's saying. There is another aspect to this which I'd like to touch on. It's a little bit parenthetical to the concept, but I want to talk about it. Because on the one side, it's, 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 it's tremendous privilege, it's, tremendous, it's, it's the knowledge of tremendous gifts with the compelling obligation that comes along with it. The, the whole concept of being chosen for something. But there's another part to it, which is a very important part. And it's the flip side of what we spoke about two weeks ago. And that's the following. There was a great philosopher, the Maral Miprag, 
Malachi. Some of you might be familiar with the fact that he created the golem, you know, this, uh, this artificial human being during the blood libels in Prague. You know, you might have read the book. How much of it's true, I don't know. But what, whatever, whatever. But the Marami Prague wrote many great philosophical works. And in one of his works called Netzach Yisrael, which translated into English is dealing with the eternity of the Jew, quote-unquote, he asks a very daring question. He asks a very daring question. In the beginning of the book, he asks the following question. The Jews make a claim to be chosen people. Right. So he says, I have a problem with that. Said, because if you look at Jewish history, they've messed up as bad as anybody else, if not worse than everybody else. Wherever there's something that's real rotten, there's always a Jew there. And they've demonstrated, true, they've de demonstrated a lot of greatness, but at the same time, let's face it, they have demonstrated uh, the terrible extremes of deprivation and all of the rest as well. And I'm not going to throw all the statistics at you right now, but it happens to be true. And the Moralmi Prague says, how can, how can we say, as Jews, and to, to raise our heads high and say, we're chosen people? I mean, you know, it just doesn't... It doesn't seem to match with, 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 the, with the facts. Uh, this is the question that he asks. Most probably if we would have asked it, we would have been st stoned. But the, but the morale asked the question at the beginning of his book. And he has a very interesting answer. It's a very deep answer. And he says the following thing. And it's very much related to a lot of concepts about how we're supposed to look at ourselves and how we're supposed to look all together at our, where we are in history. The Moralni Prague says the following answer. No two individuals are the same in the sense that a person lives under the burden or under the torment of his particular gap. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. A person has potentials. What he will eventually be, as Lozado says, is what he could have always been. So obviously, if a person could have been, let's just do it in numbers. Let's say a person could have been a 10,000 human being, 10,000 point human being. And another person is just born with less potential for whatever reason. And he can only be a 5,000 point human being. And they're both starting off at the 100 point level. You get 100 points just for being born and coming into this world. So you start off at 100 points. And one person has to travel from 100 points to 5,000. The other person has to travel from 100 points to 10,000. So when they start, the gap and the torment of, the, of, the, of that gap, experience maybe not on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, experienced within the person, is much greater in the person who has a lot further to go. And the person that doesn't have so far to go, he only has to the point of 5,000 points to go, to be a completed human being, his gap is smaller, the torment of his gap is, is not as great. And here the Marami Prag says a very interesting concept, and it can be used in many, many different ways. We'll apply it a little bit later here. It can be used in, um, in understanding human beings and the psychology of human beings. The Marami says the following thing. Human behavior, in terms of, of, of a human being... Um, mischanneling his energies, not using his energies and his potentials where they belong, will always be a greater problem where the gap towards, that, towards what the person can be is greater. Which child in the classroom is going to throw spitballs? 
the one that's so smart that he's bored by the, by the material because he understands it in two minutes and has nothing to do with his energy except devise an ultras, ultras, uh, ultrasonic speed spitball, or the person that is, is challenged on his intellectual level to understand what's going on in the classroom, <coughs> barring other family situations and other things which can create behavior problems in a classroom. Very often a behavior problem comes because the person has so much cooking inside and it's not being used. It's not being used. I'm not being challenged. I'm not I'm being occupied to the extent of what my potentials are all about. And you've got to do something with your life and it's cooking inside of you. And if it's cooking inside of you and it's not used in one way, man doesn't just let it rest. It doesn't let man rest. And then man goes ahead and does other things. And this is essentially what the Maralmi Prague says. The Maralmi Prague says that it's quite true that the Jew demonstrates both ends of the pendulum in tremendous extremes. But that doesn't prove the inferiority or the mediocrity of the Jew. It only proves the fact that man, until he, he assumes his mission, assumes his challenge, is much more tormented. And a tormented human being will go to extremes in, to try, in, in trying to use his energies. Essentially, and this is something which is developed in Musser, in ethics, and it's developed certainly even in a greater way in Hasidus, in, 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 the, in, the, in Hasidic philosophy, that man feeling that something is missing, feeling unfulfilled, itself is the fertile ground for, for behavior which is contrary to spiritual growth. Because not being content, not being happy, feeling the frustration of not being fulfilled is the right ground in which you can convince a person to do almost anything depending how lousy he feels. But when a person is down or when a person feels tormented that they aren't what they can be, right, that is a very dangerous state for people to be. Now, Hasidus always focused on the fact, Musa focused on, okay, get your act together and, and get rid of the things that are missing. Hasidus said, yeah, you've got to get your act together, but the main thing is be happy with who you are and be happy with the privilege of living and focus on what you do have instead of focusing on what you don't have. Neither one is exclusive of the other, but these were all approaches right, to remove the situation which is not a, uh, a healthy situation. So therefore, the morale says the fact that you can point and you can show statistically that the Jew, when he goes, he really goes for... Which you know has uh, so many ramifications; it's unbelievable. Maybe they'll come out in the questions when when we're finished. But getting back here, because this was a little bit off to the side. Getting back over here, what the what essentially what the neshama is saying is. <coughs> 
that I know, okay, I know that by definition, Shlemus is the wholesome state that I can reach, and Chisarin is the, the, uh, being in a state of lack is what's missing or what's impeding the process to get me there. I won't be able to argue that the things that I will reach are things that are into the distant future and don't reflect what's missing today. They're new things that come into my life later. Lazaro, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, says, which translated into English means what is, reflects itself eventually in the end was always there in the beginning. And the Nisham is saying it in a very upbeat way. The Nisham is saying it as, as something that we have to feel positive about. So the intellect says, You've spoken well. You have spoken well, and you are right that we have to understand what wholesomeness is all about, but we can't understand all of the particulars of wholesomeness because we are not connoisseurs of it. Okay, We're just developing our taste buds as to what is considered a wholesome state. So connoisseurs of what shleimus is, what wholesomeness is, we certainly aren't. So to know all of the fine tastes and tingles of what shleimus is, we don't know. But we can know in a general way. I know this is it. It's in here. It's in this area. I don't know what all the particulars are. But by knowing in a general way where we're supposed to be headed in terms of wholesomeness, I will then be able to backtrack and identify particular things that are holding me back from being that which I can be. Okay? Because when we talk about lack, lack by definition is the absence of that state of perfection. Now, I'm not going to go into this. This is this does also have a lot of implications, this definition of the word lack. It's going to come up later in terms of our attitudes as to what evil is, quote-unquote, ra. I'm not going to go into it. It's a very complicated issue. But he's, he's, saying, he's making the comment that chisar and lack is the absence of something. Now, in the absence of something positive, a lot of junk can get in there. But essentially, what chisarin is, the lack of the positive. Okay? It's not some kind of uh, monster of its own with independent existence. The bottom line of what chisarin is, what lack is, is the emptiness. What's missing. Uh, my father used to t- say it to us sometimes when we, uh, we didn't do what we were supposed to do, or we acted in peculiar ways. Uh, my, fa- uh, my father's response to that is, Das is asimenas is apustakeli, which means in English, the vessel is empty. There's nothing there, it's not being occupied with anything, and it's a reflection of emptiness, which in a certain sense, you know, it, it hit us where it was supposed to hit us, but, but in a certain sense, it's also reminding us of who we can be, you know, and that it's, that it's, it's the emptiness that is an unnatural state that has to be taken away. Okay. Amrah Neshama. So the, inter- the, the soul goes on and says, Get it out. Spit it out already. Tell me what you mean by perfection. So the intellect says, okay. Okay, and here we have to hold on tight. Because it's a little bit hard to swallow this. But in this you see, if, if you're willing to give the author 
the uh, the credit for not just being somebody that's writing something, but is living what he's writing, and the greatness of the person comes out here. And he says the following thing: Hashlemas Hazeh, this wholesomeness that we are seeking to define, Pashato. It's very simple what it is. Uh, again, for the author, Minha Mikra Uminhasvara. I can prove it by what they call, you know, what the biblical critics biblical critics call chapter and verse. Right? I can prove it by chapter and verse, and I can also prove it by logical argument. I can prove it in either way, whichever way you would like, I'll touch upon both. So let's get, first of all, let's get the, um, the theory. Okay, let's get the, uh, what is the belief of what perfection is? Okay? Now I'm going to define this into English. This is a very holy definition. Very, very. Okay? And I don't want that you should get scared off by it. So let's define the words literally one by one, and then we'll slowly pick away at it and try to understand what he's saying. Let's try to develop it slowly. Okay? What Lazaro is saying is the following thing. Let's translate the words. That the human being should cleave to the holiness of God, whatever that's supposed to mean, and he should be in a state of pleasure due to the result of understanding God right, without any barriers that prevent his full view of appreciation and understanding of God. Right. That, that, is, that is the definition that Lozado is giving. Now, let's go over that and let's try to develop what he's saying. Essentially, Lozado is touching upon three, let's identify it, let's make an outline for ourselves. Okay? So, in sorting it out in our own minds, we can maybe you know, get it, it down. We can try to picture it. There are three words, that three central themes that that Ramesh uh, Chaim is using here. The, the first one is Mizdabek. Okay? Dveikos. Mm-hmm. I translate it into English to mean cleaving. What does cleaving really mean? When we're talking about physical things, cleaving is very obvious. It's the physical attraction or the physical connection between things. What does it mean to cleave to God? What is that supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean? He doesn't say cleaving to God, but he says cleaving to Kedushasa Yisbar, cleaving to the holiness of God. So the first thing that we have to know is what do we mean when we talk about cleaving? But that's the first thing that he says in this condition of wholesomeness. The second thing that he says in the condition of wholesomeness is that yes, man is supposed to be having a wonderful time. He is supposed to be enjoying himself thoroughly. He's supposed to be enjoying himself. Now, most people think in the stereotypic uh, definitions of what religion is, is it's duty and obligation and worrying about the next world, heaven or hell. And where does the word pleasure 
and enjoying oneself come into a concept of, of religion at all in Yiddishkeit, <laughs> the way we see. It's a, it's a responsibility. It's hard to be Jewish. It's who knows what's going to happen if I don't do it. Where does having a good time fit into it? Going to a restaurant, uh, going to a ball game, whatever our, you know, whatever our pleasures are, that's the world of pleasure. But where does, um, you know, uh, you want to tell me to be, you know, you know, tied to God, fine, but don't tell me to go have a good time. You know, like what? But that's what he's saying. Cleaving to his holiness, having a wonderful time because you understand God. And that's the third thing, understanding God. What is that supposed to mean? So we have three things that we, we have to really try to get a hold of. What does it mean to cleave to God's holiness? What does it mean to have a wonderful time? And what does it mean to understand Kivodo, to understand his honor? What do those three things mean? And he points out that real perfection is when this state exists cleaving, having a wonderful time, understanding his honor without any barriers, okay? Where it's the, quote-unquote, the ultimate experience. Right. And what is that supposed to mean? So let's work through, <coughs> let's work through, I'm going to share with you, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, let's work through, <coughs> let's work through for a moment the, um, one of the concepts which he's going to bring up. <coughs> Let's say a human being, for argument's sake, it's not for argument's sake, it's, it's what he's going to say in the end, but let's say a person has one particular strength, one particular potential, one particular quality, right? That is really the definition of who he is, where he's going. Let's say he has one particular quality that really is the thing that is the aspect that if if the person says, "This is me," you know, there's an expression, "What makes this guy tick?" You know, every person has something that makes them tick. You know, if it's an interest, or if it's a goal, or if it's something that they want out of life. And it's not only what makes me tick and what makes life meaningful, but in a certain sense, it's really a definition of who I am. You know, if you want to know what a person is, or who a person is, talk to them about their deepest desires. Right? Talk to them about, and very often in their deepest expressions of desire, they're really revealing not necessarily who they are today, but who they eventually would hope to be. Right? Now, assuming that we could identify that aspect, assuming that we could identify that aspect, obviously, by identifying that aspect clearly, if one would then take the next step and say, this is the aspect, but it's not happening. It's not being used. I'm too busy with other things. You know, life is full of that. Okay, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to, to sound downbeat. But life is full of, of all of us, getting ourselves busy not with who we are, but with a lot of the other distractions 
even what we would call necessities of life, and not being able to live who we really are, what it is that we really want to be. Right? Now, when that condition exists, where we're distracted either a major part, portion of the day, a major portion of our energies, you know, very often we're distracted uh, a major part of the day, but then we give it a little time here and there. But the question is, by the time we get to that hour or whatever it is, to be focused in on what we really want to do. How much energy? How much energy do we have? How much quality time are we really giving it? You know. And a person, after everything is said and done, becomes what they're occupied with all day long. The person that argues, I'm, I, I do this all day long, but I'm really somebody else. I'm what I do the other half hour of the day, and I'm busy. It's not true. After a while, a person becomes what they're involved in all day long. Okay, what, where, whatever it might be. But let's say that condition exists, and we all are tormented by that to, to a certain degree, some to a lesser degree, some to a greater degree. If that situation exists, okay, then man is not in a state of wholesomeness. Because by definition, by definition, he's not being, he's not living, he's not occupied with what he could be, and it's not only a question of what he could be, it's a question of what he could be, and what is the most important part of, of, of what makes him who he is. If it's not an important part of what makes him who he is, essentially, so then it's not the end of the world. He's, n he's not developing this potential, but this is not who I could be. Right? But if it's who I could be and I'm not getting around to it, then the person is not in a state of wholesomeness. Because he has, because the thing which is essential to who he is is not being fulfilled. It's not being the person is not being preoccupied with it. That's not a state of fulfillment, right? That's the that's the foundation. On the other hand, on the other hand, if a human being and I'm taking this in steps so that we should be able to 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 absorb what he's saying here because it's a very heavy concept. On the other hand, if a person would be able to be engaged in what is essentially him or her. I'm busy with it. I'm working along it. I'm developing it. I'm not there yet, but I'm, in, I, I'm occupied with it. So to the extent that I arrive and to the, the extent that I'm developing and to the, to the extent that I am having success at it, I'm moving towards, towards a state of being wholesome because I'm moving towards what I'm, I'm really supposed to be and who... I essentially am. And the closer that I get to it, the more wholesome I'm becoming. That's, that, that, now, forget about Yiddishkeit, forget about anything. I think, that's, I think that's, by definition, if you think about that, you can take that even in secular terms. It's very true, even in secular terms. You don't, that has nothing to do. Now, what Rav Meshachayim Litzati is saying is, keep that formula, and I want to tell you something about you. And what I want to tell you about you is I want to tell you what is your essential personality. Your essential personality, no matter which way you try to twist and turn, is your neshama. That's the statement that is, is riding the soul. That is, what the, the that is the undercurrent theme that Rav Chaim Latzata is going to try to develop. It's your neshama. You're a physical human being. You have interests. You have talents. There are all kinds of combinations of different things. But if you want to know who you are, you, the thing which is most viable, 
most meaningful, most immortal about you that will soup, that will go way beyond your physical existence, which is the greatest energy of who you really are, is your neshama. That's what it is. It's your neshama. Now, it's not to say, it's not to say, now let's try to get this clear because this is a big confusion that people have. It's not to say that God gave me two personalities or God gave me the potential to deal with my religious obligations. I'm not saying that. I'm saying something which goes much further than that. It's not that God gives me something that I can handle my obligations with. Right? Like He gives me intelligence so that I should be able to figure out how to add and subtract when I get to the store. When we're talking about the neshama, it's not a potential, but it's the essential personality of the human being revolves around the person's neshama. Now this is a very deep study. How does the personality revolve around the neshama? But the personality of the human being, the essence of the human being, is his neshama. Now he's going to go into proving this through logic. He's going to go into this. But essentially what he then says is the following thing. If it is the neshama of the human being, what nurtures the neshama of the human being? It's not his running off to work, and it's not all the other things that what nurtures the neshama of the human being is that entity, that thing, which can nurture it. That's on the same level as the neshama. That's compatible with the neshama. And that's mitziyusa yisbarach. That's the existence of God. The connection, the, the, um, the sense of connection that the neshama has to, to, to um, what God represents, right? the, to the extent that the neshama is connected to that, has the opportunity to experience that, even being in a physical world, so then that is get the personality is is getting its opportunity to be what it can be. A neshama, when it comes into this world, feels strange because it is not guaranteed that it's going to be able to sense its natural habitat in this physical world. The world is not its natural habitat in the physical sense. God close the creation which is closest to God and therefore most compatible with God is is the neshama and therefore the neshama of the human being in the words of, of Ramesh Chaim Litzata is always yearning to live in the natural habitat that is most compatible with what it is every person wants to live where they where, a person wants to live where it's comfortable for them but saying it a little bit de- deeper, it's not where it's comfortable for them. It's, it, the word is not comfortable. The word is where I feel at home. That's, that's what the issue is. And essentially what Lazaro, what Ramesh Chaim Lazaro is saying is your neshama is the essence of your personality. And until your neshama feels, until your neshama has the ability to feel that it's at home, that it's in a natural habitat, that it is getting a chance to be itself, the person is going to be in a state that's lacking fulfillment. Right? So, what, what Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying, I'm trying to get this down very clearly. Ramesh Chaim Litzat is saying the following thing. The perfection of man, and listen carefully to this because this capsulizes the idea. The perfection of man does not lie in the imposed 
regulations that God puts upon man. But what Ramesh Chaim is saying is that the perfection or the wholesomeness of man lies by definition in who man is and what man is seeking out which is compatible with who he is. That we always, uh, perfection is by definition what God says is perfection. That's the way we look at it. So God says do this, that, and the other thing and then I consider you wholesome. But Moshe Chaim Lutzat is saying, calm down. It's much more personal. It's much deeper. It's much more related to it's who being you, who you are. That's the definition of, of wholesomeness. It happens to be that who you are, it happens to be very great. And the only way that you can be who you are is to relate to, to that which is your level. And your level happens to be God. That's what Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is saying. I mean, it's it's a lot to absorb all at once. It's a lot to to hear and to have to have to agree to, right? But that's what Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is saying. Wholesomeness is being who you are. It happens to be that being who you are is your neshama, and being who you are, which is your neshama, where is your neshama going to find who it is or who she is? The neshama is going to find that as close to the Creator as it can get without those things holding it back. That's what, that's what, now, this is, you know, this is very abstract. Let's, let's get it down to the ground. What is this saying? What this is saying is the following thing. When God comes to us, for instance, and maybe I don't have to convince any of you or most of you about this, but when God comes to us and says, do this mitzvah and do this mitzvah and do this mitzvah and do this mitzvah and don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that, we often have uh, a feeling that the whole concept of the do's and the don'ts are, you know, you know, some kind of um, authoritative source telling us how to behave. We almost think it's robotic. This we have to do, and this we we don't know the reasons, but God knows the reasons. And essentially, now with what we just said, now we have a much deeper understanding of it. When we talk about mitzvahs, the ultimate goal of any mitzvah, of any positive command, or the ultimate goal of the directives to stay away from this or to stay away from that, what is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is that the neshama should be able to be who it is. That's what the goal is. By doing the mitzvah, you, for whatever reason, we can go into a discussion why it's that way. It generates the atmosphere that the neshama can be what it, what, what it was intended to be. By staying away from the negatives, you're taking away the impediments or the barriers that don't let the neshama be what it's supposed to be. So if one would say, what's the tachlis of all mitzvahs? What's the purpose? What's the goal of all mitzvahs? So we can have a variety of the answers. There is inherent good in the mitzvah, and there's an inherent good in staying away from the... And that has a measure of truth to it. Uh, the, the purpose of all mitzvahs is to toe the line, to show subservience to God. It might have a measure of truth to it, too. But the real thing of what mitzvahs are is for the person to be who he's supposed to be. In other words, that's how I bring out what my neshama is all about. And I quote, you'll excuse the corniness of the expression, I find myself. The, the negatives is stay away from the junk that gets you off track, and the positives is what is intended to bring out that development. Now, that entails, that automatically is going to create a closeness to God. Because if the neshama lives in a healthy habitat of the positives, and staying away from the negatives, so 
So the neshama is what it's supposed to be. The neshama is is getting the opportunity of what it's supposed to be. So by definition, there's a cleaving, there's an appreciation, there's an there's an experience, there's a pleasure because I'm being who I'm supposed to be, and and so there's pleasure. It's not seen as duty and obligation. It's all being who I'm supposed to be. Being who I'm supposed to be for most people is very pleasurable. The torment of most people is they can't be who they want to be. Right? And the greatest pleasure is when I can feel the tinges of success of being who I want to be. Right? In this definition, so now we have a, a, already a little bit of sense. So let's go back to the questions. Dveikus, having a good uh, cleaving, having a wonderful time and understanding and understanding his honor. Now we can go back and we can define each one of them. Cleaving to God and cleaving to his holiness is not some kind of a spaced out thing. What cleaving means is experiencing myself completely. Myself happens to be the neshama. If I experience my neshama, that's tantamount to experiencing the holiness of God because my neshama is the expression of the holiness of God. That's number one. Okay? I don't want you to take it as simple as I just said it, but for the time being, until we see the text inside. Having a wonderful time. Right? Having a wonderful time comes from the fact that I am, that my neshama fits me. See, we all, again, we live with the concept that it's duty, it's obligation, it doesn't really fit me, I have to push it in, so it should fit. It fits me. Oh, if it fits me, so then I can have a wonderful time with it. I can enjoy it. And then going on, and I understand, I have the pleasure of understanding God's honor. You know what that means? Understanding God's honor means understanding God's will. I won't go into a whole discussion now why honor is synonymous with will. Understanding God's will means that I am not dragged in a a hundred different directions in terms of what I want. I understand what God wants for me. I can relate to it. That's what it means. Being able to relate to what God wants, which happens to be who I am, it's synonymous with who I am, is a very, very powerful experience. See, if I'm dragged away, maybe this is the good thing, maybe this is uh, where I'm supposed to be, maybe I should be involved in this thing, maybe I should be having fun with this, maybe this, maybe that, and very often it's not only maybes, it goes further than maybes. Okay, being dragged and feeling that sense of of pressure and that sense of doubt of being dragged in all of the different directions prevents me from enjoying. You know, if I'm in the middle of something and I'm already looking at what I can have tomorrow, you know, there, there are people like that. You know, we all are like that to a certain extent. I'm all, I'm thinking already about the tomorrow or what the other person has sitting next to me. Right. That prevents me from enjoying what it is that I have. So that's what Lazada says. Cleaving to his holiness, which is nothing more than cleaving to the holiness which is in me, which then gives me the ability to, to, to have that closeness with God. Um, that's a, that, is, that, when the person gets there, is not relinquishing pleasure, but acquiring a different form of pleasure, a very deep pleasure. Right? And then the, the third aspect, understanding his honor, which means understanding his will, means that I can relate to it. I see. I see what it, how meaningful it is. And there's nothing that's standing in the way 
that doesn't allow me to understand it. There aren't other things that are dragging me in all of these different directions. Let's see this inside now. And I don't know if I made it better or worse. Let's see it inside. So, I mean, it's a lot to think about. It's it's heavy stuff. What, What can we do? So the intellect says, This state of wholesomeness that we're referring to is very understandable, both from 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 chapter and verse and from logic. He should cleave to the holiness of God. And have pleasure and a wonderful time in understanding God's will, which means that I can relate to it. What God wants is is what I want, it's me. Right? Without anything standing in the way. If you would like to have a verse, chapter and verse, I will show it to you. When Isaiah the prophet talks about the utopia of man, Isaiah says, Us Hashem. Ah, then you're going to have pleasure with God. You're going to enjoy Him. Right? That's how Isaiah refers to the utopia of man. Or, David Amel, King David says, Yeshu Yusharim Espanecha. The righteous people, the ones that see straight, will enjoy looking at your face. They won't be scared of you. They won't feel uncomfortable. They'll be able to look you straight in the eye, which is a figure of speech. I enjoy you. I'm not uncomfortable with you. And when you're uncomfortable with somebody, eye contact becomes a problem. Yeshu Yusharim Espanecha means. There's eye contact. I don't have problems. You know, the satisfied and the happy faces are the ones that face you. Now, there are many verses that describe the utopia of man in the sense of seeing God and enjoying God. Okay? And it's very clear in Lozado that if a person is struggling with Yiddishkeit, and uh, hasn't maybe yet arrived at levels of enjoyment. Levels of enjoyment is a very big level. Uh, by definition, a person hasn't reached states of wholesomeness unless you can see a smile on his face. Uh, you know, the person's still carrying the stuff around, and oh, it's so hard to be Jewish, and, you know, and carries around, you know, uh, all kinds of, you know, oh, you know, it could be a process. You know, it's it's a big level. But if you even if you look at it, you know, and I'm certainly no exam, no role model of it by any means. But most big people, most big people, carried a certain happiness with them. They carry a certain happiness with them. Did you ever wonder about that? Most most great people had a have a certain sense of peace have a certain sense, uh, don't worry, I don't come out of the 60s, have a certain sense of peace to them, a certain sense of, in, there's a word in Yiddish which can't be translated into English really well, it's a fridenkeit. Which, what? 